I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday morning I reminded you that the first letter to Thessalonica is the oldest written material we have in the New Testament section of the Bible, in the Christian Scriptures. Our scholars believe that that letter of Paul to the church at Thessalonica was written either in late 50 or early 51. Today's lection comes from perhaps the last thing we have written by Paul. We cannot be assured about this letter, that is, exactly when it was written, uh, Paul gives one little clue that he's in a prison and he mentions the praetorium. Now, the praetorium has to do with an imperial jail or prison. So there would have had to have been a Roman garrison stationed there. And scholars have searched all these many centuries to see if they could pinpoint this letter's writing to one of those prisons. We know there was such a prison in Ephesus, but Luke in his book of Acts does not mention Paul's having been imprisoned there. We know there was a, an imperial prison at Caesarea, and we know Paul was confined there for more than two years. We know, of course, that there was an imperial prison in Rome and believe that Paul and Peter died there during the persecutions of Nero in the mid-60s. So, if it was, in fact, written from Ephesus, it was probably written about the year 52 or 53. If it was written from Caesarea, it was probably written in the year 60. If it was written from Rome, which most scholars seem to, to be inclined toward thinking it was written in Rome, then it was probably written in the year 63 or 64, shortly before Paul died. In any case, uh, he is in prison, does not know exactly what his fate may be from this point. Uh, he is uh, under careful guard by a Roman military, and one could never be sure uh, what the Caesar or one of those who worked in the Caesar's army uh, might do to him at any given time. Uh, this is a powerful letter, uh, one of our favorites in all of the Bible. Uh, I want you to look at this with me. There are four things I've underlined here. First of all, he says, I give thanks always. And then he mentions this wonderful word, joy. I'll talk more about joy next Sunday morning. But I've already mentioned to you that 14 times in this rather brief letter, Paul uses either the noun for joy or the verb, which is to express joy, rejoice. Joy or express your joy, rejoice. On Christmas Eve, we will have four big services here. 
And we conclude each of those services, all four of them, by singing joy to the world. Joy to the world. Notice something else, though, in this first sentence. I give thanks. Uh, Dr. Fred Craddock, in his commentary on this letter, says, you need to remember that in Greek, the word for grace and the word for being grateful have a similar root. Charis is grace and eucharisto is to give thanks. So grace comes from God. Our response to that is supposed to be gratitude, expressing thanks with great joy, no matter what the circumstances, you see, no matter what the circumstances, even if one is in prison, even if one may be very near death, we pray and we give thanks with great joy. The Wall Street Journal had an article last week about a special school in the Queens section of New York City. Uh, This article said that in Queens, one of the five boroughs, as you know, in Queens, 46% of the people are first generation in America. There is a school in Queens called the Newcomer School. It has 850 students who come from 60 different countries. In this newcomer school, they are attempting to help these first-generation Americans know far better the history of our country than many of our children learn in other parts of the United States. If you ever watch jaywalking on NBC, then you know uh, how very little some people know about our country. I'm amazed that he interviews people who are in college or even educators who don't know that we have 50 states. Uh, They guess all over the map about how many states we have and where they are. And this last week he interviewed a couple of people who thought Alaska is an island. So um, it's really weird. Well, this is not true at the newcomer school. The teachers there are trying really hard to help these first-generation Americans understand the history of our country. And this article, of course, was about Thanksgiving. And these young people from 60 different countries of the world were being asked what they had learned about Thanksgiving in America. It was interesting that they knew that story very well. That they knew that the pilgrims who sat down to eat that first Thanksgiving had buried half their number in the first winter. Half of those who had come on the ship were no longer living, yet they gathered to eat and give thanks. These young people were asked, why did your family come to America? It was amazing that more than 50% of them said for religious freedom, that the place from which they came was still uh, making life miserable for them because of their religion, and those religions differed from place to place, but they could not worship the way they felt they ought in the country from which they had come. How many of you were persecuted, your families, because of some ethnic background, because you were not in the majority where you lived before? And again, more than half the hands went up that their families had been, in fact, discriminated against because they were not of the same ethnic line as the majority or the ruling body from which they had come. They were asked, what difference, what difference do you see in America 
One young man said, in my country where I came from, poor people were skinny. In America, he said, poor people are not skinny. Food is cheap here. Almost anybody can buy a dollar meal, he said. A dollar meal. A young woman said, uh, I've been surprised how many people live on the streets in America. In the country from which my family came, everybody had somewhere to go home to every night. Uh, giving thanks with great joy, whatever the circumstance, this is a part of Advent. All families are dysfunctional, some a little bit more than others. Uh, in every family, there are some things about Christmas that aren't going to be perfect. Not perfect. Not exactly the way we wish it would be at our house or within our larger extended family. But praying, giving thanks with great joy. Number two, I underline these important words here. I am confident that the one who began a good work among you, and then I skip down to the latter part of verse 7, that is, all of you share in God's grace. God's love extended. God's unmerited love and favor extended. So that we can be different from parents or grandparents if they were people we didn't particularly admire. This coming Wednesday, there's going to be a special program on OETA called Inheritance. Strangely enough, it's about a concentration camp in Poland. If you saw Schindler's List, then you'll recall that those people who worked for Schindler were in a particular concentration camp right near Krakow. Uh, Steven Spielberg was not allowed to film in that concentration camp. He had to rebuild it right on the outskirts of, of Krakow. You can still see the ruins of the reconstructed concentration camp that Steven Spielberg uh, built. It's called Plasau. Plasau was the name of that particular camp. You remember the horribly mean commandant of that camp, don't you? Amon Gut was his name. Amon Gut. He lived in a villa right in the middle of the concentration camp. He had uh, a young woman he had brought in to uh, extend sexual favors to him. In time, this young woman conceived a child. That child's name was Monica. Monica is now 63 years old. If you saw the movie, you recall that there was a young Jewish girl who was made to work in that house, cleaning, ironing, washing, sometimes cooking, that every time Amon Gut got close to her, she was frightened to death that he might hurt her in some way. She's 78 now. She survived. When the war was over and the camps were liberated, Amon Gut was hanged by the Polish. Uh, Monica was told by her mother that her father had died uh, for his country. That's all she had been told. He died for his country. But when she was a young girl, one day she did something that didn't please her mother. And her mother said to her, I knew you would turn out this way. You're just like your father. 
And so Monica decided to find out what she could about her father. And through her adult lifetime, she's found out for far more about her father than she wanted to know. If you recall, just for sport, this Amon Gut would walk out onto the balcony of the villa there in Plasau concentration camp and just aim his rifle at one of the prisoners who was doing what he or she had been told to do that day, one of the Jews, and shoot them in the head. He was not a nice person. He was horrible, absolutely horrible. In this special Wednesday evening, these two women meet each other. Uh, a 78-year-old Jewish survivor, a 63-year-old woman who was conceived in the villa where this Jewish young woman worked, though it's not her child. The two women meet for the first time. But the key line is when Monica looks at this older woman and says to her, I want you to know I am not like my father. The grace of God has been extended to all of us so that we can be the best of our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, but we can be better than. We can be different from if those persons were not the kind of persons we feel God called us to be. We can be different by the grace of God. Paul says he has begun a good work in you. Number three, this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more. Christmas is about love, isn't it? Last Sunday morning in Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, uh, we read about love. And of course, it's in all of his letters because this is what Christianity is about. It's about agape. And again, uh, those people in history who know this word well remind us that this is a different word. This is not eros about physical attraction. This is not philios about friendship. Agape is not sentimental affection. One of the scholars I read this week said it's not sentimental affection. It's a willingness to extend yourself, to put yourself out for the well-being of another and Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says, I hope you will grow and grow in that kind of love. What do we know about Philippi? It was important enough that a letter was written to that church that has found its way into Holy Writ for us. A letter that we've read now for virtually 2,000 years. Philippi was not a big place. Dr. Morna Hooker says in her commentary in this passage, we think Philippi had about 10,000 people. Uh, how big would that be? Collinsville? Uh, maybe. Owasso is probably bigger than that by now. 10,000 people, sort of isolated. It was on the famed Via Ignatia, the Roman road that ran from Byzantium to Rome and from Rome back to Byzantium, but not a big place. Scholars believe that the predominant uh, people, the, the greatest number of those 10,000 were Greeks. We know there were some Romans there. Uh, Caesar Augustus had sent Roman families there to maintain the peace, uh, to live out their lifetimes in Philippi, making this as nearly like other Roman cities as possible. There is no evidence whatsoever archaeologically that there were any Jews in Philippi. If there were Jews there, we have no, no record of them whatsoever. 
So mostly Greek, some Roman, only 10,000 people. Paul was thrown into jail there because he called into question these pagan gods they were worshipping. He was beaten and thrown into jail. But there were some who had believed what he said, who committed heart and life to it. And Paul wrote to them saying, again, I pray constantly giving thanks with great joy. And then he says, I hope, I pray that you will abound in agape, in putting yourself out for the well-being of another. Christian Century Magazine had an article recently about a cafe in Seattle. Uh, You know about the coffee shops that had begun in Seattle. This one is called Recovery Cafe. Uh, The woman clergy who established this Recovery Cafe uh, is a graduate of Yale Divinity School. Her name is Killian Noah. Uh, Killian Noah established this cafe, wanted it to look as much like a Starbucks as possible. But the name is prominently there, Recovery Cafe. So those of you who know anything at all about 12-step programs know that it has something to do with that. Killian wanted very much for there to be a place, a safe place, where people who were trying hard to recover from an addiction of one kind or another could come and know there was always a hot cup of coffee, that there was soup, there was a sandwich for them. The only rule is you have to have been sober at least 24 hours. If you come in with any evidence at all that you're you're uh, under the effect of alcohol or some other drug, you're asked, please go away and come back when you're sober. When you're sober, you're welcome here. But in this article, it told about various people who are willing to be interviewed to tell a little bit of their own story. One was a fellow named Don. He said he had lived on the streets, uh, that he had been so addicted that he broke all ties with family and friends. He was virtually alone in the world and in Seattle. And one day when he was trying really hard to be sober, he found the recovery cafe. And when Killian said to him, uh, you need to wait 24 hours and then come back. 24 hours. If you have nothing to drink, if you use no other drug, you'll be welcome here. Coffee will be hot. Soup will be ready. And Don said, He went away, but 24 hours later, he was back and he was admitted. He was told that he would have to be a part of a small group, an accountability group, that you would have to have a group of other people to whom you would give account of how you were doing, people who would care very much for you, who would celebrate your every success, who would stand close to you if you were not doing so well. And he said to the interviewer, shaking a little ring of keys, They entrust the keys to this place to me now, he said. I open every day and I close every night. I even help make the soup sometimes. I'm a part of one of the recovery groups. Another, a woman named Cora, said, I had been abused by every significant man in my life. It began with my own father. When my mother finally realized what was happening, we moved to her relatives and one of my uncles abused me. It just turned out that we never, ever found a person with whom I was safe. So when I got big enough, she said, I did alcohol and I moved on to other drugs. But thanks to the recovery cafe, I found a different way of living and that there were people 
males as well with whom I could be safe. With whom I could be safe. Cora was a singer at one time and she is trying to revive her singing career. But Killian said, but Cora, what have we taught you here? And Cora said that sometimes the biggest gift we have to offer is our brokenness. And Killian said, and what is our example? And she said, Jesus, remember, she said, the bread is broken for you as the body of our Lord was broken and from our brokenness we have something to offer we have something to give Paul says may this something that willingness to put yourself out for the well-being of another may that grow and grow finally today Paul says I am confident, isn't that a great word? I am confident, he said, that the one who has begun this good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of the Lord, that you may stand pure and blameless before the coming of our Lord. One of our men who has been very ill is Joe Holloman. Mr. Holloman did a lot of good things for our church. Served as chair of our trustees for more than 30 years. Has been on the investment committee for our endowment funds more than 30 years. Uh, He has served on all the most important committees in our church. Even now, was on the finance committee again. Uh, He became an active part of the board of our Oklahoma United Methodist Foundation. And they discovered that his knowledge was invaluable to them. They moved him on to the investment committee. And he served there with distinction for years. I'm on that committee as well, and when Joe got to the point he could no longer drive himself, um, I would go by and pick him up, take him to the meetings every three months. So, driving to Oklahoma City and back together every three months, I got to know him much better than I had known him before. But about six weeks ago, Joe was told by his oncologist that he, he was not going to get well, that there was absolutely nothing else to offer him that he and his family should talk to hospice and move under hospice care. And they did that. Um, Last Monday afternoon late, I was at their home again. And uh, Jean said to me when she uh, opened the door for me, she said, "Uh, Joe's had a recurring dream and it's troubling him. Uh, I just want you to be prepared. He, He may talk to you about this dream. I don't know for sure. And I said, what is it? And she said, the last two nights, he said he's had the most vivid dream that he's standing with a group of people when God comes and that he raises his hand for God to take him. And God has taken everybody but him. Two nights he's had this dream. And when he wakes up, it's on his mind. And he tells me about it again. And I said, what do you think that means? I said, okay. So I went into his bedroom. She stayed in the living room so that just the two of us could visit. And surely enough, that dream was on his mind. Two nights, he said. The most vivid dream. One of those kinds that you wake up the next morning and you, you think it was real. It was absolutely real. 
I was standing in this group of people when God came and, and I raised my hand. I raised my hand. And He took everybody but me. What do you think that means? And I said, well, you and I know two things are true. One, God doesn't love any other child of His more than He loves you. There are none He loves more than you. He loves you as much as any other child of His. Second, you and I know that you've accepted God's gift. You've accepted God's gift. 24 hours later, Joe went to sleep and he raised his hand and Jesus came and took him home. 